0: That guy shouldn't be wearing those sandals.
1: <laughs> okay. Thanks, Poppy.
0: hmm
1: <laughs> And cut. Great. I feel good about that. You feel good?
0: I mean, I like it, but, I mean, you think it's okay?
1: Yeah. No. Are you kidding? <laughs> that was amazing. And I know you were worried about the whole being objective thing, but if you hadn't spoken up when it started raining, I mean, the excitement in your voice was- Oh, yeah? It was awesome. Yeah. Hang on just a second. Oh, thanks. Do you wanna you wanna water?
0: Oh no, anything? I'm okay. Thank you. You're sure. Yeah.
1: I guess I just feel like hearing you respond to it it legitimizes the whole thing. Because if I didn't mm-hmm. if I didn't know you, or if I didn't hear your voice at that part, as a listener, I would just be like, oh, uh, it's just suddenly started raining. all right
0: right. Yeah. Well, I still kind of think that. What do you mean? Well, it's just I you know, I try to think back, and I wonder if. Maybe there, there was a way Sundridge could have pulled that off without us knowing. No.
1: I mean, he's resourceful, but he's not a magician.
0: Uh, maybe, but like a rain machine on movie set. I don't
1: know. I feel like you would have seen it. I
0: don't know. I think.
1: I don't, but I know I wasn't there, but the way it makes sense to me is that sometimes you just get so focused on the thing right in front of you, you don't see what's in the periphery. Like people don't see the clouds because they're staring at the stage, right? I guess it is actually kind of kind of like a magician, it's sort of a sleight of hand trick, but he wasn't intending for it to happen. Listening to the segment just really made me wonder like what are the other things like that around me, like around town that I'm missing? I'm sure I'm just blind as a bat when it comes to some of the other shady stuff that's going on in Robbinsville.
0: Yeah, um except bats aren't blind.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, but well, I mean I know they're not actually blind, but they can't see well, right? Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, um, really? it. some species have poor eyesight in the day, but most of them can see really well. And, you know, and also that, that phrase is mostly about how we think about sight, right? They they don't see like us. So we started calling them blind and it stuck, but it has more to do with how we see their sight. And in reality, we aren't really good at like assessing things accurately, which is the super irony of why we get this metaphor wrong.
1: How old are you again? You're like 17, right? It's all those AP classes.
0: <laughs> those those count not, they count for like extra credit age wise.
1: Oh, you're saying it makes you older? You're you're 21 in AP years. Yeah, 21 in <laughs> AP
0: years.
2: <laughs>
1: Poppy, Rice. what? You are like the cowbell of the thicket, and I got to have more cowbell.
0: Oh, it's so sweet. You said
1: you have something fun for us. What's going on?
0: Oh, I do. Um, so I've been digging for more and more animal stories, and found a student news story I thought you might like. And well, let me just say, it has more laser bats. Ah,
1: more laser bats and more cowbell. I don't know what we're doing here. All right, Poppy, ramp us in.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to hear is a news report by Wow High, uh, a high school weekly news program televised in public school classes in the greater Western North Carolina region by a closed circuit television every Friday morning. The following is a portion of the broadcast just a few weeks ago. And that's how Orange Julios is squeezing the most out of its kiosk potential. (laughs)
2: Now back to you, Crystal. Thanks, Tina. Some cold facts for us all to drink about. Finally, we bring to you this field report from bat-crazy field reporter, Mitch Thompson. Mitch has been batty with excitement over the urban legend of the Highway 28 laser bats. Mitch. North Carolina Highway 28. Wikipedia defines it as a primary state highway in the state of North Carolina that runs north-south through the Nantahala National Forest, but does that even begin to describe the secrets hidden there? No it does not. By now we've all heard the tales of laser bats shooting down dragonflies, butterflies, and even small birds up near Fontana Lake, and we've dismissed them as tall tales told by our parents to keep us off the roads after parties, but a recent transportation development has shed new light on this story and the facts behind it. I'm here at the 28-143 intersection where the Department of Transportation has recently added a high-speed traffic camera to the intersection in an effort to catch those who blatantly disobeyed the flashing yellow light. I asked local patrol officer Bruce Brigham to explain.
3: Well, there are a bunch of accidents involving motorists blow through the yield light at that intersection. Self and other officials would determine that there's an automatic ticketing system. Forced by a high speed camera, might help your detain, yield dangerous driving habits. You know? There's a lot of locals mutant to Almond to Fontana Dam.
2: So, do you think that the high speed cameras could capture images of bats flying?
3: Detecting cars here, cars that are driving through fast, dangerous intersections. We're looking 40 50 mile an hour range. I don't think bats fly that fast, but thank you.
2: But what they didn't expect to catch was photographic proof of the laser bat. The images you're seeing before you now are photographs taken by the high-speed camera at night as it captured traffic violators. Notice, in every photo, the presence of dark-winged shadows. Never-before-seen photographs that document laser bats shooting down prey with only their eyes. Shocking. I showed these photos to local scientist, 9th grade biology teacher, Mr. Wilkinson.
4: Ah, guys, with the, the laser bats again, I don't know, it's, look, it's probably just the light from the flash of the camera refracting off the retinas of the bats, you know, like it does with deer in headlights or babies on iPhones.
2: But look at this photo. The bird is already falling to the ground and the bat hasn't even caught it yet. You can see the glow of the laser in the fog.
4: It's reflected light. It has to be. There's
3: no other explanation.
2: Laser bats do exist. Bruce Brigham.
3: Have you ever seen a kangaroo shoot an AK-47? Well, Have you ever seen a crocodile shooting a torpedo?
2: The images say that the bats are shooting lasers.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of bright lights in this city, you know? It's not just any small town around here.
2: Disagreement amongst the experts, but while the jury is still out on the existence of laser bats, no one doubts how important they are to this school. The laser bat is the most important unrecognized species in the world. If you go out and ask any high schooler which animal is most important to this community, to our city, the laser bat, every time. Popular senior Donnie Miller says, why is it so important? It's cool. It shoots lasers. It would be the first animal discovered to shoot lasers out of any orifice. I mean, that's something that we should be celebrating, not demonizing. The school board turned down your petition to rename the high school mascot after the laser bat. Do you think this new evidence will change their mind? They won't be convinced until we catch one,
3: which is what I aim to do.
2: Good luck to you. What do you want to say to all the high school kids that are going to be watching this?
3: Go home, don't drink and drive. Stay away from my traffic.
2: Back to you, Crystal.
1: There's this diner down the road called Stacoa. Well, I think that's how you pronounce it. The the locals say it so low and mumbled that I'm not sure if they're saying the A-H on the end of the name, and I'm too embarrassed to ask it sounds like stucco, but i think they're actually saying Stacoa. um anyway will took me there a couple weeks ago i keep going back primarily because their cinnamon rolls are legit not those heavy breaded kinds where you basically get like a big dinner roll that has a little cinnamon sprinkled inside and cheap white frosting caked on top no no this is one of those masterfully crafted cinnamon rolls where the sheer number of swirls exponentially increases the surface area of the dough, thus allowing for more significantly more cinnamony goodness. And the, as long as we're getting into it here, the bottom of the roll is caramelized, dense and chewy, with a brown sugar, molassesy, stick to your mullers butter candy. Uh-huh. Can you get it with pecans? Why, yes you can, because they know what's up at Stakoa. But you cannot get it with raisins, because that's a sacrilegious bakery invention created by Napoleon during the French Revolution to torture enemy prisoners. Would you like this cinnamon roll? Yes, please. I'm starving. Fantastic. Here is this cinnamon roll. Just one thing. It is full of raisins. (laughs) Um, I have quite a bit of time on my hands, uh, in my apartment by myself, so... I will probably run this segment by poppy later, and she can tell me if I should cut out that uh, French role-playing thing I just did. Anyway, I'm pretty sure that's a historical fact, but at the very least we can all agree that raisins are just tiny grape corpses. Where was I? Oh, okay, yeah. I was talking about the Stacoa Diner. Incidentally, a place where you frequently hear the phrase, where was I? Because the diner is a place that stories are told. The kinds of stories that have a very specific point to the teller at the onset. But then the point gets dissipated in the narrative, probably because the story is actually better than the point. This ultimately leads to the moment when the narrator has the task of trying to circle back to a starting point that they might not actually remember. Anyway, I remember when Will and I first walked in, I noticed two different booths. Each booth was filled with four older gentlemen, each man with a speckled ceramic mug of coffee in front of them. There was pointing and arguing and laughter. It was cool, and I wanted to hear those stories. So I keep going back and trying to eavesdrop. I started on a stool at the counter and have slowly migrated over the course of several visits to a two-top, and finally to a strategically chosen, with an earshot, booth. And I'm happy to tell you, this work has paid off.
5: Usually we we'll are wait by 6 o'clock, 6.30 at the latest. So we're usually up and about pretty early, and then. If I've got anything going on, a lot of times I'm up and going earlier if I'm going hunting or fishing or whatever.
1: This is Ron. Ron is a regular at the Stakoa Diner. All right, well, thanks for being willing to get on and chat about this stuff.
5: Hey, you bet. Uh, You know, I I guess um, maybe just to uh, prime the pump a little bit, um, just tell me a little bit in more detail what it is that you're, you, you,
1: you said something about a community Yeah, so I tried to explain what a podcast is, um, which I, I think I'm getting better at now that I've realized that one out of every three or so North Carolinians think that a podcast is some kind of cool new fishing rod. Uh, anyhow, I explained that I'd overheard him at the diner talking about poaching and that I was really interested in what's going on with all these animals around Robbinsville. Now, Ron is formerly a game warden, like the late Leroy Jensen, though... Ron, unlike Leroy, never got wrapped up in the zoo trade. He's a retired game warden. Technically, I guess the title is Wildlife Enforcement Officer for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, which is a mouthful. So locals call him game wardens. It's a state agency that they work for tasked with managing fishing, hunting, the wildlife population, licenses, etc. Not to be confused with fish and game which is a federal agency, and no one wants the feds sticking their noses where they don't belong. You know those crime or heist movies where the hardworking, grizzled police detective ends up going nose-to-nose with the big city FBI suits and inevitably at some point yells the line, this is my case, it's not your jurisdiction. Well, Ron is the grizzled police detective in a town where the difference between local and federal is a huge deal.
5: First of all, the government um, and less could maybe That could maybe address this a little bit better than I could even. But any time there's a new species or subspecies of animal that's identified, the federal government just goes nuts. Um, They literally do because of the Endangered Species Act. And uh, especially if it's a rare species or a new species, the first thing that the government would try to do probably is put total protective measures on these animals, uh, make it illegal to uh, possess them, make it illegal to catch them, make it illegal to harm them in any way. Um, And when that (laughs) happens, the first response is, well, some of the people are, they're very suspicious of the government, uh, very suspicious and controls that the government is trying to put on their lives or on what they can do with their land. Because that usually goes along with it. All of a sudden, they put all kinds of developmental restrictions on what you can do with your land because it may affect this rare species. And so, people have one one of the big responses is always, from common people, is that well, we're just going to get rid of these animals. (laughs) We're going to wipe them out. Uh, Because if we see one, we're going to kill it because we don't want uh, the government finding out that this species is on our land. Because then they're going to try to tell us what we can and can't do with
1: our land. Oh wow! So they just uh, exterminate it?
5: Yeah, I mean, and I mean, we see that around here all the time. That the government's talking about. Well, um, the subspecies of prairie dog is becoming endangered, so we're going to have to put it on the endangered species list. And so all these ranchers are going nuts. Uh, saying, well, they're going to start telling us what we can and can't do in land, so let's wipe them out. Let's just make sure that we don't find that animal on our property. (laughs) Um, So that's one response. Then the other one is people see an opportunity to make money.
1: And that's what's really going on behind the curtain, right? The deeper into this we dive, the more I realize that money is driving this whole zoo propagation along. And thanks to the dark, forested tangle of the thicket, some things are going on back there to which people are pretty blind.
5: Okay, here's an opportunity. This is a rare animal. It's worth a lot of money. People are going to, collectors are going to be looking for it. Um, Zoos are going to want it. And so, even though it's illegal, there develops a black market of capturing and selling these animals for profit. Because if they are rare, then all of a sudden everybody wants one. Collectors want one, zoos want one, uh, and so there's a market for them.
1: The problem is acquiring these animals is no simple task, especially if you want them alive. I'd assumed all along that um, these animals were just rampant, running around back in the forest, and someone who wanted to be a wrangler just had to go out and tranquilize one, then take them back to the zoo. In fact, it was actually one of Ron's tranquilizing stories that I first overheard at the diner. I asked him to tell it again here.
5: Like I had one deer that had been, I don't know how it even happened, but it had gotten a, a child's uh, sandbox bucket over its nose. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and, the little, and the little bale, the little bale had flipped up and caught on the back of its little nubs of antlers. Like a muzzle. So, like a muzzle. <laughs> yeah, it was totally muzzled. And, and so it, it was running all around town with the bucket over its face <laughs> and people kept calling. And so it could see, but it couldn't eat or drink. Um, and it couldn't get this thing off by itself, so everybody was insisting that we do something about it. I chased this deer around for a week, probably, and shot. <laughs> it wasn't until finally I, I couldn't get close to it because it was so mobile, until it finally got to where it just was so getting so weak because it wasn't eating and drinking that I was finally able to get close enough to, to get a dart into it. But I, I missed three times before I finally got it, so I spent... Probably you know three four hundred dollars in drugs on this one deer just to get this bucket off of its face, and then you got to be really careful because if you miss with some of these darts, you need to recover it because you don't want some kid finding this dart with this with this drug that could really hurt it. uh, You know, anyway, there's so there's a lot of complications when you're talking about tranquilizing, and tranquilizing things is not easy, especially small animals, if you're talking about small animals, it is so easy to misjudge the quantity of drug that's needed and actually end up killing the animal rather than just tranquilizing it because the tolerance on, I mean, we try to use drugs that have a wide tolerance, but uh, even on big animals, you've got to be fairly close. I mean, beyond 50 yards, these guns just are not accurate enough to really be consistent And there's so many variabilities. I mean, it's kind of like, more like shooting a bow and arrow than it is a a real gun.
1: Okay, so tranquilizing an animal isn't as simple as I thought. But for someone like Leroy Jensen, someone who'd had experience doing it, surely they'd have a fairly easy time going out and collecting these animals for zoos,
5: right? Wrong. You can get the guns, the tranquilizing guns, but the drugs are another thing. The drugs are incredibly carefully and highly regulated. only people that can get them are uh, licensed veterinarians um, or, and that's usually all researchers. Um, You've got to have all kinds of special permits for it. And there's a type of drugs that would be very valuable on the black market because they can be converted to recreational drugs. Many of them are narcotics. When I was tranquilizing things, I had a tranquilizer gun, and there's a lot of different types. But the type I had uh, was, it was uh, powered by these little 22 cartridges of three different colors, and each one was a different um, power. And that's what provided the propellant to shoot the dart out of the gun. And then on the gun itself, you had a dial. You could control the amount of power that was going into the barrel to expel the, the dart. And then you had all these different sizes of darts that you would fill the drug, put the drug into. But even then, you had to mix the drugs uh, very specifically depending on the animal that you were trying to tranquilize.
1: Right there we on the a spot, book. like you're you're in the middle yeah. of the forest, and you're mixing the drug right there. And
5: that's you know that's why when you see all these things on you know on TV about guys just jumping out of a, a vehicle and shooting something with a tranquilizer dart, that's not the way it works.
3: <laughs> wow. I
5: mean. First of all, a lot of times when you get the call, you don't even have your tranquilizing equipment with you. You don't carry it around with you in the truck because a lot of these drugs are temperature sensitive, and so you keep them in you know, a locked. And they're also they're very valuable, so you keep them in a locked storage at home. Is what I did. I had a locked cabinet, and then if I got a call that had a bear up in a tree that I needed to tranquilize, I'd have to go home get my tranquilizer done, and my drug kit. Go to the scene, see the animal, okay, then open the book and say, okay, the basic one, you'd have to estimate the weight, <laughs> and then you'd have to mix up this cocktail of drugs, um, usually at least two drugs that you would mix, and then put into a dart, and then add water to whatever level to, like, for example, for deer, beer, uh, oil, and the most common thing that we probably tranquilize is bears uh but you would mix a combination of two drugs one was called pilazol and the other one was called ketamine the ketamine was a tranquilizer i mean where it was a calming drug the other one was a total nerve inhibitor where it just completely shut down the nervous system where i mean not the the breathing and heart rate would still continue but they would totally lose their ability to control any of their muscles uh, to even be able to blink their eye they couldn't even do that uh, and so you'd have to put, after you tranquilize them, you'd have to actually put ointment in their eyes to moisten their eyes because they could no longer even blink their eye to keep their eye moist. And then you would handle the animal and do whatever you needed to, put your tags in it, put a radio collar on it, take samples, whatever. And then you'd, you'd have to give the animal a reversal drug to get it to come out of the tranquilization. And, and I mean, when you... When you shot the animal with the tranquilizer dart, the drug doesn't just immediately knock them down. I mean, the ones that we were using, you'd usually take about between 5 and 10 minutes for the drug to take effect. So you'd literally be running after this animal, trying to keep it in sight until the drug took effect. And then it would go down, and then you'd have to be there to do whatever you needed to do to it. It's It's a very complicated process, and it's a highly, highly regulated process. The general public doesn't even have access to these drugs. they have to be getting them from, if they were using them, they would have to be getting them from a licensed veterinarian or something that, would do, that was selling these things to them on the sly.
1: Vets selling drugs out the back door to wranglers. Licensed medical professionals who, allegedly, see a financial upside to be had and can probably justify it in their minds, right? I mean, the animals aren't being killed. In fact, don't zoos help encourage people to care about animals? I feel like that's reasoning I've heard before, like the zoos perpetuate conservation. I don't know if it's true, but regardless, I bet it's repeated enough for vets to use it as justification, make some money dealing regulated narcotics to the Wranglers, which is crazy. And just when I thought it couldn't get any crazier, Ron starts talking about helicopters. Did you say helicopters? Yes, helicopters.
5: I mean, what they would do is they would fly out. They're in areas where it's really hard, real rough areas. Um, also, we use them for deer, and we'll put radio collars on. We'll use other types of traps, too, but sometimes you just need to get a whole bunch of animals really quickly. And so we'll contract with these, these animal capture companies. And they've got a pilot that's running the, the helicopter, and then they've got a gunner that stands in the open door and has himself secured with the straps so he didn't fall out. And he's leaning out the door, and the and the pilot will try to hover right above these animals, within thirty or forty feet above them. And the gunner shoots a—it's an eight by eight net that's propelled with literally a thirty out of six uh, bullet, <laughs> not a bullet but a shell. It doesn't have a bullet in it; used to powder. And it shoots out this net that has weights on the end. And as it shoots out, the net opens up and just basically entangles the animal. And they get all tangled up and rolling down the hill. And then the gunner has to, um, the pilot has to get him down close enough to the ground where he can jump out. And he runs over it, and grabs the animal and puts halters uh, on its legs so it can't move and then untangle it from the net.
1: As you can imagine, that's not a cheap undertaking. It's high stakes when you put a helicopter in the air to catch an animal. It better work. You better get paid at the end of that venture. With all that money in play, it becomes a competitive market. If you're in the business of wrangling, well, then you probably got somebody nearby who's trying to take that business from you, get those animals before you. Therefore, it might be useful to you to be able to eliminate a little of that competition. Well, the local government realized they could exploit that, so they developed a fund. Reward money, basically. Just like the Old West.
5: You get money for turning in people that you know that are breaking the law. And oftentimes, the way it worked out is the people that were... Turning in poachers were other poachers. Wow. They were getting rid of their. They were getting rid of their competition. <laughs> uh, you know, this guy's out there taking these animals that I would be taking. So they'd call in, and you know, so it's it, it's real backstabbing. It's amazing. I mean, these guys are doing this for money. And anytime that money gets into the mix, it's just like anything else. It just becomes very ugly and very, especially if there's a lot of money involved in it. If it's a very rare animal, um, boy, the the dollar value goes
1: way up. Anytime money gets in the mix, it's just like anything else. It gets very ugly. I love that. Part of the reason I like that statement is it's the kind of thing you'd say in a diner surrounded by black coffee and grizzled friends, and then everybody would just give this unanimous nod, right? Like the nonverbal confirmation of, well, ain't that the truth? One thing I forgot to mention in my cinnamon roll rant at the top, something I've noticed about the careful art of properly consuming one, is that you really shouldn't cut across swirl, as though you're just forking your way through a cheap piece of sheet cake. A cinnamon roll should be eaten along the swirl, like you're climbing a staircase of deliciousness. Doing that, it slows you down, makes you pay attention to the pastry, to the complexity of it, but also to everything else to the conversation around you. You have more time to sit and consume the morsels of truth without looking like you're purely eavesdropping. And you realize, as that twist is unraveled and laid out before you, then you see just how huge it is. Anyhow, I told Ron I'd probably see him back at the diner. Maybe we could sit and chew on this together, one bite at a time. When we come back, we'll hear two perspectives of Thomas Slant. A man many people consider to be a hero, but others say was turned by this ugly business. That, when we return. Let's talk about common drinking water for a second. Sewage enters the nearby Henderson water treatment plant and clean drinking water comes out. What happens there is a necessary public service, but rest assured most of us don't care to know about the dirty business inside. After talking to Ron, I I kept thinking about the wilderness surrounding Robbinsville and all the little things that happen out there we never see and maybe don't want to. Did you know that all the zoos in Robbinsville have this sort of holding pen out there? It's true. Just check online, they're called satellite pens, and every zoo has at least one. The day-to-day details of these pens is anyone's guess, but it's safe to say that so far, everyone's turned a blind eye to them. The zoos are good for Robbinsville, so why disrupt that? Well, there was one man who did, Thomas Slant. Even though he himself was the zoo master of Fort Dawson's Cove, he was working to pass ordinances to bring more transparency to these satellite pens for fear of any inhumane treatment of the animals there. I say was because he passed away last week, and man, has it been a roller coaster of emotion for this town, Robbinsville. What started off as a tragic passing of one man, key to the entire town, spiraled into headlines that would have made National Enquirer jealous. For this one, I've enlisted the help of my trusty intern, Poppy, so that together we can help really paint the picture of the duality of this man, Thomas Slant. Poppy, you're up.
0: I'd like to first begin with a quote that I feel captures the theme of this segment. Okay. And I quote, "I guess we're all two people, one daylight and the one we keep in shadow." Anyone out there know who said that? Guess what? Free guest appearance on our show if you're the first to call in with the correct answer.
1: Ah, uh, uh, Poppy. Oh, is that cool? <laughs> well, I just—you probably should run that stuff by me first. Oh, but, okay. Uh, go ahead.
0: Oh, yeah. Great. Um, we're here at eight. 8- Oh, call your answer now.
1: Okay, that, do not give out my cell phone. <laughs> okay, I'll beep that out. But oh, um, while we're waiting for the lucky caller, let's talk Thomas Land.
0: Right, um, he's the guy who looked at this crazy place back when it was no more than spit on a map and said, yeah, I get it. Yeah,
1: he practically founded the place and now he's gone.
0: Good riddance.
1: Now you're giving away your point of view. Let me, let me read my side first. Okay, that's a good note. I'm going to read you guys this piece from Susan Vilroy, of our very own Gramstar newspaper to give you some background. Her article is called slant walked the line, the tragic death of local philanthropist and zoo master.
0: Wow. What a witty title!
1: Careful. It's our employer after all.
0: Oh, I work here for free. So,
1: okay. You can say whatever you want. (laughs) All right. Here's the article. The town of Robbinsville was emotionally rocked Friday when Slant was found unconscious in the driver's seat of his 2002 pickup, crashed into a tree on State Road 1214. Emergency responders had him life-flighted to Swain County Hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival from a heart attack. Thomas Slant was born on March 25, 1960 in Kenley, North Carolina. The son of a farmer, Slant had always been expected to follow in his father's footsteps. After studying agriculture at North Carolina State, Thomas returned home to help run the farm. However, the farm was sold in 1988 due to the fallout from President Ronald Reagan's deregulation of the farming industry. Slant cited this as one of the darkest times in his life. With most of the proceeds from the sale, Slant's father sent him to Western Carolina University in Kalawi, North Carolina to get his master's of business. He surprisingly dropped out when he felt a calling to Robbinsville. Slant's impetus was the death of two young boys, Sam Brown and Michael Jones, who were attacked by a mysterious squid recognizing the need for the town to heal, Slant was part of the original team who sought to find purpose in the tragic death of the boys. He broke ground within the year to open what would become the Dawson's Cove Zoo. His first order of business was not to build habitats or parking lots, but to raise a statue in honor of the slain boys and establish a top-notch children's zoo program. Thanks to Slant, their deaths were not in vain. Slant himself often gave tours on Saturday mornings and created a nonprofit named Our Future, awarding college scholarships to students in the area. Within a year of Dawson's Cove's success, four additional zoos opened and another three the subsequent year, leading some to acknowledge Slant as the founder of the Robbinsville Zoo industry. Over the last year, Slant spoke on numerous occasions before the Robbinsville City Board in an effort to address the environmental impact related to the increasing amount of zoos in Robbinsville as well as more oversight into the humane treatment of all zoo animals. In his last presentation of the council, Slant suspected there to be roughly 20 remote areas used by the various zoos to breed and stabilize their animals before bringing them into public zoo space. He also specified roughly five square miles of land and waterways surrounding Robbinsville that he believed should be off limits to everyone until the natural wildlife and fauna could return to their healthy numbers. At the time of his death, Slant was still working to find a solution everyone could agree on. So obviously his death has been a huge setback for animal rights activists and environmental conservationists in the area. Those who knew him agree that he gave so much of his heart to Robbinsville that perhaps he didn't leave enough for himself. Mayor Holly Johnson said this about the man. Never has Robbinsville suffered a loss as great as this one. Everyone he touched was stronger for it. And Dr. Samuel Beal of Rum River Large Animal Clinic said, Tom loved Robbinsville and served our community with great passion. Fellow zoo master Charles Sendrich said, I'm amazed by Tom's level of success. Sendrich added that he is hosting a memorial brunch on Sunday at the Robin Falls Zoo in remembrance of Thomas Slant. Reservations can be placed online. The actual memorial will be held at the Dawson's Cove Zoo starting at sunset on Saturday. In lieu of flowers, people are encouraged to donate to his nonprofit. He is survived by his wife, Catherine.
0: What a guy. Clearly, he will be missed. Or will he? Okay, but first, let's check to see if anyone had the right answer to my trivia question. Give me your phone. Give it to oh, me. Just to check no,
1: sorry. There's no callers. Oh, yet.
0: shoot. Probably too hard of a question.
1: Oh, yeah. Also, because this is not a live show.
0: I uh, feel dumb. Oh No,
1: don't feel dumb. I'm glad you were excited.
0: Oh, thanks. Okay, the person who said the quote, I guess we're all two people, one in daylight and the one we keep in shadow. End quote. Is, drumroll please.
1: <laughs> it was Val Kilmer
0: playing Bruce Wayne in Batman Forever.
1: Oh That's pretty random. Okay, but the point
0: is, <laughs> who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Uh,
1: that's, is that another? Are you... Quoting is uh, Apocalypse Now.
0: No! Er, the shadow knows <laughs> with Alec Baldwin. Okay, stay with me. What I'm saying is everyone has a dark side. I agree with that. Yeah, I'm talking Dr. Jekyll, Mr. High Level yeah. stuff here, you know, like Jim Carrey and the mask.
1: What are you? Are You are out of control. These so <laughs> many obscure film references. Do you memorize this stuff?
0: I, I don't know. I remember what I hear. Okay.
1: Well, let's, we're raining this back in now.
0: Yeah. Let's just all take off the rose tinted glasses and recap. Back in episode two, we discussed the bizarre death of game warden Leroy Jensen, right? The guy who was shot before being eaten to death by horned rats Uh. in his own home. Who shot him was anyone's guess. The man had a lot of enemies. Police did recover a .38 caliber bullet from the scene, but there were no fingerprints on the bullet, and so it was a dead end until...
4: Dun, dun, dun. Oh,
0: good. Our philanthropic Thomas Slant dies. Mm. This is the crazy part. So Slant crashes his truck into a telephone pole. He's life flighted out, and it's only then that the police notice a thirty-eight revolver jammed up into the seat springs of the driver's seat.
1: What?
0: uh, By the way, this is all according to articles that came out a few days after the one you just read, and surprise, surprise, none of them are written by super fan Susan Vilroy. Anyway, the police uh, run the gun through ballistics and link it to the striations on the bullet found at the scene of Jensen's death.
1: Striations.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the the inside of the gun barrel has those rotating grooves to spin the bullet. Every bullet fired out of that gun is going to have the identical markings, kind of like the gun's fingerprints on the bullet. No, I don't. You, you didn't learn this in school?
1: In school? Yeah. No, that, <laughs> that must be a Southern thing.
0: Ah. Huh. Okay, Brooklyn. Long story short, <laughs> the police matched the bullet that killed Leroy to this gun, and this gun has slant fingerprints all Whoa. over it. It turns out that spot deep in the thicket to be a secret satellite pen for Dawson's Cove, and guess what's there? Uh,
1: an animal of some kind.
0: Yes. What animal?
1: The pregnant horned rat? Yes! Whoa!
0: Yes! The very rare rat that people suspected Leroy was selling on the black market. Okay, theory is that Slant was trying to monopolize the horned rat industry for financial gain. And get this. Remember the areas he was trying to close off to the public under the guise of environmental conservation? Okay. Well, people are taking a closer look and wondering if he was actually trying to set aside secure areas for more of his secret satellite pens. Also, his calls for greater transparency at the other zoos was likely just a distraction so no one would notice the mess in his own backyard. Dude was a killer, cold blooded. Wow. Oh, and do you remember Leroy Jensen even covered for him in that I deposition? Oh,
1: I mean, he just, it was so clear that he didn't think Slant was dirty. You know, it's kind of heartbreaking. He betrayed someone who trusted him. Yeah. It's hard to believe this man almost died a saint to this town.
0: Yeah, we were probably days away from being named Slantsville. And
1: it's—I would suggest avoiding Susan Villarreal the water cooler for a while, though.
0: Yeah, for like eight reasons.
1: Within days, Thomas Slant goes from hero to villain. Every time I think I understand this place, every time I, I think I have a grasp on it, it just flips me on my head. It makes me wonder how often we, you know, we miss those obvious things. All right, so Poppy, do we take the red pill and see how deep the rabbit hole goes? <gasps>
0: Alice in Wonderland?
1: The Matrix. Oh. By, by way of Alice in Wonderland.
0: That's right. Yeah. Credit where credit is due.
1: Well, that wraps it up, folks, for this segment. So we're going to go find a good piece of music to play us through all this tumult. Stay tuned for our sponsor.
0: Matrix is such a boy movie.
1: The Thicket would like to thank our sponsor, Cousin Joe's Vape
4: Shop. This episode of The Thicket is proudly sponsored by Cousin Joe's Vape Shop, North Carolina's favorite chain of vape stores. We've been a pioneer in the vape electronic industry for two years, selling innovative products backed by the customer service. Our friendly staff of talented individuals are ready to make amazing things happen in your daily life. Cousin Joe specializes in handcrafted e-juices made to order with over 100 flavors. Our customers have the option to choose from 0 to 20 milligrams of nicotine to our house blends of 50-50 to max VG. Most of all, we are very proud to announce our newly revamped line of tarantula tonics containing only safe levels of venom. Try our new tonics today to help you with everything from insomnia to ADHD with no life-threatening side effects. And don't forget, all of Cousin Joe's vape shop shops feature lounge settings providing the perfect environment to endure our products all day. Cousin Joe Vape Shop, the cousin you can trust.
1: The Thicket is created by Owen Shiflet, Adam Lane, and Ryan Daniel Dobson. Our sound engineer is Kevin McCarthy. Edited by Neil Ross. Our theme music was composed by Andrew Jed. Special thanks to Tiffany L, Ethan Hargrave, Hannah Hargrave, Addie Shiflet, Justin Hargrave, Jason Waxman, Alex Smith, and Ron Dobson. Additional music by Atrium59, Neil Ross, Kelly Reed, and Chris Roman.